Thank you for taking time out of your day to join us on the curbside as we waste a little more time in the garage with Jim Cherry, noted author, illustrator, and columnist for all things automotive, and Tony Barthel, publisher of the Curbside Car Show Calendar. Let's head to the garage and see what's going on this week on the curbside. Welcome back to the curbside. It is a pleasure, honor, and a privilege to have you here. And uh, we have gotten such a terrific guest with us this week. I, am, I, I can't wait. But just as exciting is the fact that sitting on the other end of the microphone is the world famous Jim Cherry. Howdy, Tony. How are you this morning? I am fantastic. How about yourself? I am uh, as well and looking forward to listening back to this fantastic show we have coming up here. Yeah, it's it's just it's sort of uh, something I've been looking forward to since we started this podcast and it's only taken us 25 episodes to get here and that's okay. And uh, we have a lot of people who have hopped on board our little bus here and so here we go. But as we go down the road, our first stop is going to be on Trivia avenue and we have the answer to last week's trivia contest and as you remember last week's trivia question was we were looking for the term that virgil exner chrysler's chief designer in the 1950s uh used to brand his advanced styling that came out in the mid 50s and revolutionized car design and the answer was the forward look dun 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 and uh, it was very, as I say, very influential, and uh, the cars are considered very collectible classics to this very day, and uh, a lot of it is all about the fins. Absolutely. Which were wind tunnel tested. Very good, Tony. They were the only fins that were actually tuned in the wind tunnel to help stabilize a car over 50 miles an hour. Absolutely. Yeah. You could say they were using fin night analysis. Wow. That's yeah. a new low even for you. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and yet it makes me happy if you would like to enter our trivia contest all you have to do is visit us at curbside.tv fill out the contact us form and if your answer is one of the many correct answers we receive we will pick one at random and send you a curbside podcast t-shirt in your size and you can see this week's podcast there are actually pictures of a very lovely young lady in one of the curbside podcast shirts so again curbside.tv and uh, jim i'm going to defer to you to introduce this guest because i think you know him better than i it's sort of your wheelhouse so uh, if you would please well thank you tony yes i do specialize my interest in cars to the uh, concept cars of the mid 20th century period and uh, when you have that interest, there's one name that you will continually come across, and that is Joe Bortz. He's a restaurateur, nightclub owner from Chicago, who has invested in collecting the world's greatest grouping of concept cars from the mid-20th century period, principally, although he's started to add some much newer ones lately. But uh, he has the cream of the crop, especially of General Motors Motorama cars, which were the peak of the mid-century concept car fever. So without any further ado, welcome Joe Bortz. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, an honor to be on, and uh, I'm glad to be able to share some of my experiences with your listeners. Absolutely. I have a, a million and one questions for you, as does Jim, and 
I'm going to start with uh, what fuels your passion for these cars. Joe has collected some incredible dream cars. Well, I, I think uh, I think for some people it's the fact that maybe they're father was interested in cars or something like that but in my family i was the starting point my father was not a real car guy and there was no real car guys in the family but you know I, my story is you know one of those kids that was fascinated with cars from you know the time that they were just uh, wee kids and you know i don't really remember the, those times but you know your parents tell you about it recall it so it does become part of your your memory uh, block and i always just loved cars and I was a kind of a big kid for my age, and uh, in Chicago they had the uh, auto show at the International Amphitheater. And so, at the age of about ten or eleven, you know, back then a kid could get on a streetcar and take the streetcars, the various ones that would connect, and go down to the International Amphitheater for the Chicago Auto Show. <laughs> that- and so, you know, so I was one of those kids that would go down there either by myself or with a couple friends. The people would be standing up for the, especially for the Motorama part of the show, and you'd try and get some guy that would let you crawl up on his shoulders and sit on top of him so you could see it too. So, so Joe, you know, Joe, are you talking about the original General Motors Motoramas here? Yes, the General Motors Motorama started in about 1953 as a Motorama, mm-hmm. and it was a show that went around to all the auto shows, but eventually it was part of a roving show that the General Motors, now you keep in mind that this is basically before television became universal. So it was either you saw something at the movie theaters, and at the movie theaters, they'd always have a short newsreel you know, showing what was going on, both uh, nationally and internationally. Or you'd get it out of the newspapers and maybe hear something on the radio. So they would literally bring the show to the various cities besides the auto shows that would happen. They had the Motorama, and the Motorama traveled with 12 of the future liner buses. And it was a whole wagon train of vehicles that would set up and present a show in different you know cities around the united states and the motorama cars were the special cars that were made for those shows the advanced concept cars mm-hmm. and so you know the idea of when i was a kid the whole idea was i was extremely lucky if somebody would put me up on their shoulder so i could just see what was going on, on stage and see the motorama cars and well pretty interesting was, that you ended up owning some of those cars yeah, yeah well that yes yeah i mean that's the whole the whole point is that you know as a young kid maybe 11 12 years old i would see these cars and the biggest treat i could get was just to be able to see them sure and then you know the idea of ever being able to get close to one or ever be able to touch one or ever be able to sit in one was like you know deciding i was you know maybe i'll be one day be an astronaut or something that just wasn't (laughs) conceivable Yeah. yeah Yeah, and, and so you know, so yes, it, it's ironic that something like that as a starting point ends up where the finishing point is, and where I'm actually in possession of you know most of the major concept cars that followed from you know General Motors, Ford, and, and Chrysler. Also, you know, not just the concept cars. You also at one point owned five of the Future Liners. Right, right. Well, actually, uh, it was uh, was it five? I think it was seven. Oh, know, seven. Okay. Seven. Yeah, but that, that that was an interesting quote unquote accident in the situation that one of my ideas that I got into uh, in my business world was I uh, accidentally 
ended up buying an ice cream parlor because it was filled with antiques, which I loved antiques, you know, not just cars, but it had Nickelodeons, violin machines, uh, Penny Arcade, old Penny Arcade uh, things, diggers, Hokum and Hoke popcorn machines, and things like that, which are all highly collectible today. And I bought it really to be the owner of these wonderful antiques that were in this ice cream store and that led me into the restaurant business nightclub business and all that so it was a uh, kind of a you know another journey that i took as another tangent in my in my life so yeah it's uh but the future liners uh, came to me not that i collected them one by one when i was in the restaurant nightclub business a gentleman came to me and he said you know i have collected either five or seven of the future liners I want to make them into a restaurant. Well, that's interesting. And back then in the 80s, they had Victoria Station. Victoria Station was a restaurant that was made up of boxcars. And they were all kind of put together. And you walked into this boxcar, that boxcar, and had tables and everything in there, and you'd eat. So he wanted to take the future liner buses and call it a bus stop. And he wanted to build a round building and cut off the nose of each bus as though it was parked in in the bus stop station and then people could walk into the bus and dine in the back of the bus just like they were dining in the boxcars all that of course you know set off a lot of red flags for me and he wanted me to partner up with him and i kind of knew i didn't want to cut up the buses so i told him that i really didn't want to have a partner and he said well if i don't have a partner like you i think i'm just going to have to sell these buses and of course that's exactly what i was waiting for so i ended up buying the buses <laughs> and, and, and and the buses are they're elephants they're just gigantic and i quickly realized that you know if i did restore one that it would be another problem to find some place for storage because they were extremely high you'd have to have normal uh, much higher than normal garage doors and things like that uh, you know to get them into a building and so you know i had a lot of unrestored concept cars that I would have at that time and did uh, prefer to restore rather than a bus. A bus would be like restoring two or three concept cars, and I certainly thought I'd be much happier in the end to have two or three restored Motorama cars than one bus. But the buses are they're, they're just really impressive because they're just so darn big, and they are part of history. They only made 12. They lost one bus uh, during the various runs that they made it was crashed so i left 11 and i think of the 11 i think i had seven is what i think as best i recall so and, and you know uh, they sold the one bus recently i think it was at barrett jackson which was one of my buses but I, when i sold all my buses they were unrestored they sold that bus for 4.4 million Whoa. so yeah. I, yeah so i say that i've given other collectors somewhere between you know, twenty and thirty million dollars uh, as a donation. <laughs> so I thought that was very generous. Yeah, not, yeah. not voluntarily, but uh, indirectly. Interesting. Yeah, and that museum that you donated one of the future liners to has done a spectacular job of restoring right, it. Right. Yes, we res- that's the Car and Truck Museum in Annapolis in uh, Auburn, Indiana. And we did restore, and we did donate uh, one of the buses to them. They restored it, did a fabulous job. It was the first bus that got restored. I'm kind of interested in cars that got away. In other words, uh, we're fairly familiar with a lot of the cars that you've restored and brought back to life, which is fantastic. But then there's a couple cases where you own cars, but you didn't restore them. You decided just to sell them off, like the Mercury XM800 
and the Plymouth Plainsman you owned for a while, but you decided not to restore them. I wondered what your decision was on those. Okay, well, that's a, that's a good question. Car collecting is car collecting, and living is living, and they, they do intersect, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so while I was collecting, and, and collecting was a very high priority in my life, I didn't have, uh, you know, yachts, and I didn't have, you know, big memberships and big expensive country clubs and uh all that i didn't you know i didn't have airplanes i mean i was you know i was really the cars there was other things that i was interested in but you know i say well you know i could uh you know i wouldn't mind buying a a plane and learn, getting flying lessons and but i say boy i could for that money i could have you know two more cars and then that would take <laughs> care of that idea you know so everything was yeah. equated to cars you know Oh, you asked me about the question about the cars that I gave uh, let go. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. about, about 2008, I had a, had to go in for triple bypass when I came out. I thought, oh, my God, it's, I'm not going to really make it that much. And if I do, I'm going to be not too, uh, too healthy of a guy. And so I thought, well, the first thing to do is it takes two or three years to restore the simplest concept car. And some cars, like the Chevrolet Biscayne or the LaSalle Roadster, 1955 LaSalle Roadster, the 1955 Chevy Biscayne, both fiberglass show cars for the Motorama in 55, those took, you know, a decade or more, you know. So I thought, well, I got these unrestored cars, which was the the Nash Palm Beach, the... um, Plymouth Plainsman, was that one? The Plymouth Plainsman, and what was the other one you mentioned? The Mercury XM800? Yeah, Mercury XM800, all of them needing major, major work. And, you know, they weren't my favorites. They weren't my Mm -hmm. favorites. So Mm -hmm. I did let them go thinking. And then, you know, by the time, you know, the the two or three years it took to, you know, dispose of those cars, uh, I started feeling a lot better. And so I stopped separating myself. The only really unrestored car I have right now is the 1955 LaSalle Ford or Sedan. We did restore the sister car, the 1955 LaSalle Roadster. Mm-hmm. And we uh, we always put a slideshow and show notes, which we'll link to uh, Joe's website, and we'll have pictures of these cars that you can look through as you're listening to this and, and enjoying Joe. And, and of course, we're very happy, as I'm sure so are you, Joe, uh, that your health has has come back, and and we're here to enjoy your company today. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, it's an interesting trip uh, through the trip of life, and you know, some people are definitely more fortunate than others. Uh, some people find what they're interested in, but really don't get a chance to do it, and some people find what they're interested in and do get a chance to do it, and then some of those people are even successful at what they're really liking what they're doing. So, it's a it's a you know a kind of a multi-level situation and the luckier ones get up higher in terms of multiple features of enjoyment you know so yeah so i've been very lucky in that regard and uh, a lot has to do with luck and a lot has to do with perseverance and uh, i did an interview a long time ago and the interviewer was going and he was saying you know he was wanting me to say something yeah well it all came from hard work and all that and i said he said so what is your formula for for uh, collecting and i said well mostly paranoia <laughs> <laughs> and he said well what the heck does that mean i said well the paranoia is that you know when you do find out about a car you think somebody else is going to get it and if you're really paranoid about it you just 
don't give up, uh, you know, uh, a second until you get that car. You just pay constant attention to it. And of course, that you know, kind of is a, is a good thing, and it's also a thing that uh, can steal your time away from other things. But that's just, uh, you know, that's just uh, the way of life, you know. Yeah. yeah. You uh, speaking of letting them get away, at one point you were able to get four cars out of a junkyard in Detroit called War Hoops. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's probably the you know single greatest achievement that we we accomplished, and again another quote unquote accident. Oh no! What are you doing with a horse? This plan can't fail. I'm going to ride around like Paul Revere so I can tell everybody that they can post their car show and vintage trailer rallies on the curbside car show calendar. You don't have to go anywhere. They can do it right from any smartphone or computer. Besides, who's going to clean up after the horse? Oh, right. Though I do love horsepower. It's not the same kind of horsepower. My husband is insane. But Curbside.TV is a great place to get the word out about your car show's vintage trailer events and read great stories about vintage cars. Oh, no. I stepped in it. We really started, I really started maybe acquiring concept cars. I would say about 1966, 68. And, you know, nobody at that time, people thought that they were all, if you read the books, it said all concept cars have been crushed unless they're still with General Motors. Mm-hmm. And everybody just bought into that. And then, of course, uh, I popped up one and then another one. And before you know it, there was a publication called Automobile Quarterly, and they did a big spread on the six or seven cars that I had at the time or more. I don't know what it was. And it was a beautiful spread. So I was selling that spread in the Automobile Quarterly. It had just come out to my son, Mark. And there was a sidebar on one of the pages, and it said, uh, there's been a continuing rumor that at the War Hoops junkyard in... I don't know if it was Sterling Michigan, that they're they're hiding concept cars and they won't show it to anybody because they were junked out there. My son looks up and says, geez, Dad, he said, we should call them and see if they got some concept cars. And I said, Mark, don't be a sucker. If there were concept cars there, they would be long gone. I've heard that story for years. Well, I'm going to call him up and see. I said, well, you know, back yourself out. So he's dialing up information, you know, got the number. Next thing I know, he's talking to somebody. He says, Dad, the guy wants to talk to you. And he handed me the phone, and, you know, this is Joe Bortz. He said, oh, well, that's the only person I want to talk to. I just want to talk to Joe Bortz. His name was Harry Warholic. And he said, uh, I have something here that you want. Well, that's all. I said, uh, uh, give me your uh, your address, and I'll be out there tomorrow morning. And then, of course, you know, so I hopped on a plane early in the morning, flew out there, it was a down and dirty junkyard. I mean, it was down, you know, you walk in to the office and there's a little bell on the door that rings and the counters were old, beat up wood. I mean, you know, and the junkyard was just all muddy and dirty and people would go in there and you had one entrance and the in order to get out, you had to go out of that entrance, which was the front door. So you go in the back and take parts off the cars that, you know, you needed those parts from. And then you'd walk them up to the front office and you'd pay for them. And then you'd take them home. So I went there and, you know, said, uh, you know, I met Harry and he said, okay, come on, I'm going to show you uh, show you something. He takes me out and he shows me the 1958 Cadillac Eldorado Brome town car, the fiberglass show car. It was the 
really first showing of the what became the 56-57 Cadillac Eldorado Brome with the stainless steel top. Gorgeous, gorgeous design. And the car, it didn't have a motor in it. And as best I recall, it was the one that had a tree growing up from under the side of the hood that was about <laughs> six or eight inches in diameter, you know. He had lifted up the hood, and there was just a tree growing through it, you know. <laughs> so, and every so often, the bell would ring in the front, and he'd excuse himself and say, i got to go take care of a customer. So he had a couple of, you know, down-and-dirty guys that were working back there for him, and I would go up to him and say, hey, you know, what's going on here? You know, any other cars, you know, anything else? No, sir, we don't know nothing. We don't know nothing. <laughs> okay. Kerry <laughs> yeah. finally came back, and he said, well, there it is. And I said, okay, what's the price? He said, uh, you uh, fly back to Chicago, I'll give you the price tomorrow. So I learned a long time ago, you, you never get aggressive with old cratchety guys because they'll eventually say well just forget the whole thing just go home so i had that experience a long time before so i was you know whatever he said i was you know that's fine i parted and took the plane back to chicago following morning called him up and said well what's it going to take to buy that car and he gave me a price and i go that is i said i've been known to pay too much for these concept cars but that's too much too much and he says, oh, that's too much for four cars? I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I asked him when I was there if he had any other cars. He said, this is it. Uh, what are you talking about? So then he told me he had the Chevrolet Biscayne and the two LaSalle's, the four-door and the Roadster. Wow. It didn't seem like very much at all. I said, I'll, uh, I'll be there tomorrow morning. So I flew back out there to look at the other cars. And yeah, it was a good deal. And I loved the other cars. And the story goes like this. When General Motors was going to get rid of a concept car, they had a very specific way of doing it. An executive had to travel with the concept car to a junkyard. Then he had to stay there, watch it get cut up into pieces. Then he had to watch the pieces crushed. Wow. And, of course, when they did that and they brought it to the junkyard, the title automatically transferred to the the ownership title you know or the ownership transferred to the junkyard so that they could do what they had to do or wanted to do whatever in 1957 or 58 i don't know uh which year there was a serious recession i think it was 57 and whenever you have a recession you have the bean counters take over a company to try and you know save it or save the the profits because there's not a lot of new money coming in so they try and squeeze the old money that's you know still coming through and the bean counters looked around and said well we're paying storage for these cars and this and that we're never going to use them again let's get rid of them so they made that decision they wanted the cars off the books as best i recall was 1957 so they got a hold of a mid-level executive and it was during the Christmas break, and they said, we want you to go down. We'll take sent down two cars at a time, and you'll witness the cutting and the crushing. You know, the guy wasn't too happy, but, you know, okay. They sent the first two cars, which was the Chevy Biscayne and the LaSalle Roadster, and it was two days before Christmas Eve. So the guy, you know, was there. He saw him cut up the cars. He said, I know you're going to crush them. That's going to take another couple hours. I'll just sign off that I saw them crushed and, you know, Thank you very much. So, of course, they took the parts and they hit them, the cars, the whole cars that were cut in the the pieces. Hmm. The next day, he showed up with the Cadillac, 1956 Cadillac Eldorado Brome Town Car and the 1955 LaSalle four-door sedan. And he said to Harry Warholic, you know what? 
It's the night, be, it's the day before Christmas Eve. My wife is going out, out of her mind. She wants me at home helping her for the party for Christmas Eve. She's so upset. I'm not going to stay here for the cutting. I'm not going to stay here for the crushing. I know I can trust you guys. And he left. And of course, they hid the cars in one piece. And so that's how the cars got there. And then, you know, over the years, people, they, I heard that people even had helicopters flying over the junkyard to see if they could see any concept cars. They didn't know what they were, but they heard that they were there. And they would never show them to anybody. They had them kind of in a way that there was, you know, people that would come into the junkyard couldn't see them. But still, some people did over the years, by the way, if you read the... The, on the internet, this guys did. Some guys did sneak in, did get into the area where the cars are, and did see the Chevrolet Biscayne cut up and laying on top of a whole heap of cars, just like another junk car. And so that was that was it. So we ended up buying them and bringing them back. And uh, the first one, the uh, the Chevrolet Biscayne, got restored about 20 years later or something. You know, so it was a big job. It was a big job. Yeah, it's that's a fantastic looking little car. I, yeah, I really so, like yeah, that. that. That's considered probably the greatest, you know, barn find, junkyard find ever. You know, what some of the historians have told me because of the cars being so significant, because the story being so significant, because the cars ending up in our collection as a very fortunate situation, you know, which is a fortunate situation for the cars themselves. Absolutely. Joe, I was always curious, what was the most challenging of the restorations that you've done? Well, that's that's a that's a that's a hard question. I mean, you know, I don't do the work myself. I was fortunate in uh, having the two cars that were cut up. There was a, a an Italian uh, sculpture named John Busey, and he was here in Chicago, and he ended up in his later years, doing sculptures in fiberglass. So that was his medium. Mm-hmm. And one day he saw, he came up to my, you know, where, one of my warehouses, and he saw the Chevrolet Biscayne just stacked up in a corner. And the, the chassis was gone on the car, so all I had was the body. And he said, what is that? And I said, well, that's, that's the all the pieces of the body for the Chevrolet Biscayne. He said, what are you going to do with that? I said, I'm just, it's just there for kind of like a monument so people can see it. There's nothing you can do with it. And I showed him a picture of the car, and he went browsing around. And he said, you know, I can put this together so it'll look like a body was the body was just pulled off the chassis because we didn't have a chassis. It was given to uh, Warhoops, took the chassis off and gave it to a school. I said, yeah, you know, be my guest. So he came by one day with a truck and a trailer and put it all in there and I, I just totally forgot about it. And about three years later, he, uh, oh, he, oh, he also took the LaSalle Roadster. I forgot about that. He took them both at the same time. And about three years later, I even forgot that I had the cars. I was just busy with other things. <laughs> and he calls me up. He says, come down to my, my showroom. And I go down there, and here's the LaSalle Roadster all together, looking like a totally unrestored car, but it was together. It wasn't pieces and the same thing with the chevrolet biscayne it looked like a body had just been pulled off the chassis wow so we so we had these two cars just kind of you know sitting around uh, you know they especially the biscayne didn't have any wheels or anything so it was on two horses and it was just you know an amusement piece you know a curiosity and you know and we and the chassis was a special chassis so we never had any hopes of being able to put wheels under it or get, you know, an engine and all that. 
and I was all very friendly with General, all these guys at General Motors um, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, because I was starting to become their hero for saving their history at my expense. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so one of the one day one of the guys sent me a picture of the Chevrolet Biscayne chassis completely intact with wheels under it, but the body hadn't been lowered on it. And I go, Oh my god, I can see what it is now. And there was a uh, a hot rodder named Kerry Hopperstead in Belvedere, Illinois, and his specialty was making chassis for hot rods. And he's also the the, the guy that switched the the right-hand drive on the... Uh, oh, the, the Plainsman? The Plainsman, yeah. That car ended up in Cuba, uh, in uh, Australia, and it was they switched it to right-hand drive, so he switched it back to left-hand drive for me. Huh. And while I was there, I said, what's that big table you got over there? It's all like almost like shiny stainless steel. It's like, you know, 25 feet long and 20 feet wide. What the hell is that? So that's the chest. That's the table I make chassis on, and I'm the number one chassis builder for hot rods in the United States. I said, you know, I got pictures of the chassis for the Chevrolet Biscayne. Do you think you could make that? And he said, well, send it to me. So I sent it to him. He says, you're lucky because the wheels were on the chassis. He could measure the wheels, and then he could scale everything else. Which oh, he did. wow. Wow. And he says, I can make the 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 chassis but it'll be about five or six years i said oh my god i said okay i'll, I'll wait you know and about six months later he called and said one of his customers got divorced and they had to stop doing the manufacturing of the guy's hot rod that he was putting together and he had an opening and did i want to fill it and i said sure so he made the whole chassis and it had a 55 engine in it, which was the showcase for the 55 265 v8 engine in 1955 and we had all the factory pictures by that time so we made everything up and he dropped the unrestored body on the you know not restored chassis but the basically new chassis with all the components that we were able to acquire that we needed for suspension and steering brakes and all that did you all did you use mostly period correct stuff everything everything was exactly the way the car was done. The engine, of course, is 55, powered light. You know, mm-hmm. every, all the suspension pieces were right out of the bin, so that was no problem. The mm-hmm. engine, we got an engine that, that, that we totally restored, and, of course, the engine was painted silver and a lot of chrome on it and everything because it was the showcase for the engine. And, uh, you know, we had to make, you know, seats, and a lot of things had to be made. Some of the gauges had to be made and all that. And it was, uh, you know, it was quite a daunting task, but I was fortunate that I ran into, after John Pusey glued the body together on both cars, I was fortunate that I ran into a fellow named Marty Martino. Marty Martino is a fiberglass genius, and he, uh, you know, built the two cars and put them together and got everything restored, and, you know, he really, you know, made it happen. And so, and so, had these had the body in that recreated chassis had the they been really precise about measurements, or the guy was so good with a chassis it just fit? Sounds it, like it, an, it, it, it dropped on. It looked like it was the chassis that you know the body was removed from. It was wow. an absolute perfect fit. But you know, he did scale drawings and everything. He had a big chalkboard there. I did a lot of. Oh. It was a lot of work. It took him about two years, and you know who knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, 
uh, you know, went into just the, the, the chassis in terms of, you know, every little piece had to be made, then it had to be, you know, restored. You know, so it was it was a big deal. You know, it was a big deal. But it's, was the it's Biscayne a, it's always a complete driver functional car, or was it yes, more? The, yeah, more the Biscayne and the, the Biscayne was a driver. The Cadillac would have been a driver, but they never dropped the engine in it. And the LaSalle Roadster and the LaSalle Sedan were scheduled to be electric. They were both fitted up. Uh, the LaSalle Roadster and the LaSalle Sedan are what I term the turning point in American automotive history the wrong way. Well, that was fascinating, so much so that we have got part two with Joe Bortz coming up next week where you're going to hear him say... Tommy Earl was an orchestra leader that didn't play any instruments. As always, we end each show with a trivia question. And, well, uh, this week, surprisingly, I have your trivia question. And that question is, um, if you follow Joe Bortz through a lot of the places he is on the Internet, you'll see that there is one of the concept cars that he owns that he is kind of associated with just driving around. And he's said it's a wonderful, very drivable car. It was created by a legendary designer uh, along with the family of the people whose name is associated with the car. So if you can name what that car is, uh, why you may be the winner of a Curbside Podcast t-shirt. And in order to enter our contest, all you have to do is visit us at curbside.tv, fill out the Contact Us form with the answer, and why you may be that winner. So thank you again for joining us here on the Curbside. It's always a pleasure to spend this time with you in whatever form you listen to us. You can always find notes, information, pictures, and more at curbside.tv where you'll see articles and all kinds of great stuff in a car show calendar. So, Jim, thank you again for being here with us. My pleasure, Tony. I very much enjoyed our chat with Joe Bortz. Uh, Fascinating stories. And this is a man who's made a real contribution to the auto hobby in a very unique way that uh, is really uh, part of history at this point. Yeah, seven future liners, imagine. (laughs) All right, well, we will see you next week on the curbside. Something to look forward to. We'll see you then. Thank you. While it may sound like two miscreants in the basement of their mom's garage, it actually takes a village to put this on, and we've got this village people. Our door-to-door sales consultant is Annie Von Holm. Office decor advisor is Perry Winkle. Lighting designer is Chandelier. Crossing guard is Jay Walker. We'd like to thank Wendy DeWitt, the queen of Boogie Woogie, and Kirk Harwood for our music. Now go get something productive done. That honeydew list isn't getting any shorter. 